0: We're in a room full of church leaders, pastors from across the country, and your opening statement is, when it's all said and done, when it comes to the church, it's mostly only said. It was starkly quiet. I'm not even calling it a loving rebuke. It was just a rebuke. Like, it was all said and done in the church. It's mostly only said. Y'all talk a lot, but where are the results? I'm Jeremy Dixon, and you're listening to The Misfit Manifesto. What's happening, Misfits? Once again, we are here for Misfit Manifesto. I'm super excited to have you all joining us, but I'm also super excited about our guest today. So, convinced. That now is the time for Pioneers. My guest today, Ben Sand, serves as the CEO of a venture nonprofit focused on empowering leaders and mobilizing community for the common good. On today's episode, Ben and I will discuss things like utilizing technology for social entrepreneurship, the hazards around some of these newer technologies, and innovating the future with a cultural lift Ladies and gentlemen, huge round of applause for my buddy, my friend, the incomparable Ben Sand. What up, homeboy? What's up? How you doing, man? I'm doing real good.
1: Yeah. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. I appreciate
0: it. Man, you have no idea how grateful I am. I mean, you know this, but a big part of what I'm doing, man, is informed by our friendship. A lot of things that I've had the privilege of learning from you and time spent with you and really seeing your work. And so, man, thanks so much, not just for this, but thanks so much for being an inspiration. I know to many others, but I can say personally that you've been a huge inspiration to me, man.
1: Well, I'll tell you, our brotherhood is very important to me, and I just iron sharpens iron. I can say the same thing about you, the way you've influenced my life. So when you said jump on the podcast, I was like,
0: (laughs) where and when? Let's do it. Let's get it. Yeah, man. Do you remember how we met? I do. Okay. Okay. Let's hear it. Yeah. Let's see how we have well, we the same story. <laughs> well, my original recollection
1: was it was a connection originally through the Church of God. I mean, it was through Jim Lyon. That was my yeah.
0: original connection. Yep. And then we've got rabbit hole, you know, rabbit trails going everywhere. Yeah, now. we were in but, Seattle, right? Yeah. In Seattle. And uh, it's so funny. I fell in love with Seattle on that trip and met some incredible people. You were one of them. But of the people that I met... Uh, I don't think I'm closer to anyone than I am to you, you know and I mean yeah. our our bond like was cemented in a yeah. real way, and it traces back to almost a decade ago, bro. It is it's been almost ten years. Isn't that crazy? It's crazy, it's nuts, dude. It so okay, so I got I got a thousand questions, man. I'm only I only can do a few, obviously, because we're be limited on time. You know, we can't sure. be here forever. Yeah. But give you know give me or give us um, kind of just like a. Uh, the the snapshot version of the origin story of Ben Sand, you know, where, where, how do you arrive at this moment? Like childhood, like where you come from? What's your, what's your narrative, man?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I grew up in Spokane, Washington. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm a, a kid that grew up with, in a single parent home with no pop and five other brothers and sisters. Um, we grew up in a challenging environment for sure. Uh, we were poor and, um, you know, my mom did the best that she could, but it was, you know, very difficult growing up, and her and I you know, had our own challenges. And so, you know, I, my siblings, it's a little bit of a scattershot, you know, in terms of where we've all landed um, after growing up with adverse childhood experience. Uh, but for me, you know, it was a combination of a deep curiosity and in, in, um, in language and words and the written word and some kind of gifts that God had given me. But that combined with the network of relationships uh, really is what sponsored me out of poverty uh, Hmm. when I turned 18 years old, which is when I met Christ through uh, a nonprofit organization called Young Life. Hmm. And so, you know, so much of who I am today is really rooted in the reality of like a few people who decided to take a special interest in empowering me, making sure that my gifts could shine. And, you know, for me, Jeremy, that, that really has like become you know, ultimately kind of my life mission is yeah. trying to engage and get people involved in the lives of those that have, they're experiencing adversity in one way, shape or form. And so after college, I moved to Portland, Oregon
2: mm-hmm.
1: and began to work for Young Life. It was all I had known and uh, found some frustration with that organization, which is and maybe neither here nor there, although I'm happy to get into it, <laughs> okay. but started... I started a scholarship program in 2005, just a few years after college called Act Six. And then that really became the moment where I realized I was actually a social entrepreneur, mm. um, which I know we'll talk a little bit about today. But um, and so from there, you know, my career is kind of taken off in being a bit of a misfit and trying to, you know, inspire, you know, new big ideas that can serve others. But it's really all rooted, you know, in my childhood experience. And this conviction that I have, that what I received I need to pass on. I'm just hoping to do it at scale.
0: Dude, first of all, that's incredible. But second of all, you called yourself a misfit. We got to applaud that real quick. Ladies and gentlemen, he's a misfit. Yeah, that's right. Ben right. Sam. Ben a Sam's a misfit. I love it. Um, it's so funny. So one of the running jokes we have, I think it's more of a joke for me, and I think you hate it, is the whole Portlandia thing, right? Sure, and, yeah. you know, and I always bring it up because I watch the show Portlandia. I think it's hilarious. One of the things that you point out is like, that is a that's a very specific lens of that community, but you know, or that or that area, but there are a number of ways in which you can see um that area and what it's like to grow up in that area, you know, the becoming in that area. Can you talk a little bit about the complexity, the diversity of the area in which you work and serve? And it's not necessarily like the Portlandia vibe, it's like a number of different elements that are at play.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, the thing about you know, this the perception that people have of Portland is Mm -hmm. like a far left kind of liberal, crazy weird town. There's definitely truth to that. To say that that that's not a part of Portland's lived experience wouldn't be true, but you know, what I've been looking for since I've been living here, which is now almost 20 years, is uh, I've been trying to understand the city a little bit Mm -hmm. and trying to um, identify, you know, uh, where in the city uh, there are pockets and where there are in the city, there are uh, communities that have experienced challenge. I mean, most folks don't under, don't know, you know, that the state of Oregon and the city of Portland was founded originally in its founding documents uh, as a white utopia. Hmm. The objective was to keep the city of Portland and the state of Oregon white. Hmm. And, you know, so there is this really deep racial tension in the city sure and you know i live on the east side and that's typically known as kind of the urban part of the city and mm-hmm. you know which is i've lived in the city you know my whole life so part of it is um you know if you are a person of color or if you are a person uh that is experiencing economic adversity in this city you are not living with a portlandia experience sure um, yeah and you know that's exacerbated particularly if you are a person of color and and so Part of what i've tried to wrap my life around uh both in terms of a man of faith but also as an entrepreneur is just somebody that says like uh we've got to set step up and address some of the disparities mm-hmm. um we've got to address address some of the systemic inequities that are present in in portland and in oregon writ large and um and so it is a tale of two
3: cities yeah, in many ways yeah
0: yeah you know what's and we're, we're going to get into some of your like incredible incredible work in just a minute but something that you did I guess maybe a couple of years ago and it may have been post George Floyd is you actually were participating in writing a, a a kid's book um mm-hmm. and I I want to say it's uh why you tell me what the title was I want to say the title right yeah 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 so
1: it was you know the the pandemic was crazy in Portland and uh you know for many reasons we got involved in a lot of different work yeah. but you know for me personally you know one of the things that's been important in my own lived experience has been recognizing that i am a white cisgender educated you know uh middle class male that benefits from unearned advantages uh, just because of who i am and uh and that i was born the way i am sure. and so you know to me what was so troubling about um the conversation around Black Lives Matter was that, for most of the f- white folks, uh, you know, that I knew or that you we were experiencing on social media or in the media, uh, more generally, the question was always pointed out towards, you know, uh, questions about the lived experience from people of color, prim- primarily from the Black community, and I was frustrated by the lack of introspection hmm. in the white community. And so I ended up writing a kids' book called "A Kids' Book About White Privilege," yeah. and uh, it, you know, took off a little bit, and came came with that came people that loved it and people that <laughs> right hated it and wanted me dead. But yeah, uh, in the end, and you know, I do think it's a topic that as white folks we've got to really explore, and and in order to do that, I was hoping to try to speak to my little 10-year-old and 12-year-old little girls and help yeah. them understand and you know hopefully share to start a little bit earlier with some younger people.
0: I love it, man. I was uh I was teaching in Denver. I want to say it was Denver and the premise of of my talk was I'm not asking people so much to lose power but to leverage it more appropriately. Yeah. And one of the things about, or or even privilege, leverage privilege in, in appropriate ways. And one of the things I love about you, Ben, is it's so much more than rhetoric for you. It's not just the book that you wrote. It's not just talking points. I mean, you have gone heart deep, head deep. I mean, in every way, your life has lined up with your principles, your values, in very, very sacrificial ways. And you talk about Act 6, and I think Act 6 turned... I don't know if it turned into, but then there's Portland Leadership Foundation, and now there's this incredible org called The Contingent that is literally lighting up the scene right now in some very, very innovative ways. And in fact, I think the the, the underpinnings of your organization is innovation, right? And so sure. talk about The Contingent. What What is it? How did it come to being? You know, just give us like a bird's eye view of that incredible organization. Yeah, thank you. So, yes, the Contingent is uh, a
1: venture nonprofit. So what that means is we make investments in nonprofit startup ideas. Mm. And if it's a concept or an idea that um, is about mobilizing community members at scale or about empowering leaders, uh, we're interested. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a method by which we bring new ideas to life. And so, you know, uh, as an organization and and as a foundation – Part of it is making investments, and then part of it is when those investments work, we hold on to them and we attempt to scale them. Yeah. Uh, and at this point, that scale is growing a little bit bigger than even I imagined. But sometimes, Jeremy, we just fall flat on our face and we fail.
2: Hmm. And
1: uh, and so, you know, it's uh, – the wins are, are big wins, and some of the losses are real painful. But hmm. what we're convinced of is that uh, – it's time for us to think different it's time for us to reimagine how we serve one another and how we mobilize and engage neighbors to love neighbors and I just think we're barely scratching the surface on some of that mm-hmm. and you know so much of of uh you know the church historically has been responsible for demonstrating mercy to neighbors and you know I'm concerned about our current moment um some of the lack of scalability of even the faith community's activities and so we're stepping into this really odd space trying to demonstrate that there may be a third way to go about it.
0: That's incredible, man. I, I I love that, you know, it feels like the way in which you're approaching this conversation certainly is with optimism and has mercy as a construct, compassion, all this. But you're showing up as a strategist. I mean, you're showing yeah, up like yeah, sure. we 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 play to win. I'm not just trying to do something good. I'm trying to do something right. sustainable, you know. And I look right. talk about yeah. that a little bit because you use the word scalability, which is important because a lot of people are are tipping their toe in and doing this and that. But scalability is a huge part of why what you're doing is so important. Yeah. So you know,
1: one of the pieces of the puzzle here, for, from our from our perspective as an organization, is that you know the nonprofit sector is you know overrun with non 501c3 organizations that are oftentimes are started by people that have really good ideas but those ideas very rarely translate to effective outcomes hmm. so it's 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 often that someone has a passion they want to do something about it they start a nonprofit and those nonprofits tap out about a quarter million dollars and and they end up not being able to realize their fullest imagination and so what we're particularly interested in is how do you seed an idea, create it in a time-based and resource-constrained way, um, and imagine the possibilities of if that idea could scale or not? Mm-hmm. Now, not everything needs to be scalable. Sure, uh, sure. But our organization is obsessed by it. So <laughs> if if we are investing in, in concepts or ideas or nonprofit ideas, and they're not scalable, we'll either kill them or we'll transition them or sunset them.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: so what we're we're particularly on the hunt for are ideas that, that can you know serve tens of thousands if not millions of people and um and i know we'll get into this a little bit but where technology is where data is where ai is where mm-hmm. machine learning is mm-hmm. uh, you know we're heading into a whole new world and it's a world that for the first time really in human history scalable um community engagement is possible from our yeah. perspective uh, in ways that it wasn't previously so so we're trying to be on the kind of cutting edge of that and you know like i said Sometimes we do all right, and sometimes
0: it's mud all over our face. <laughs> so so here's the million-dollar question. i make some assumptions about um, an environment like that producing what I see as some sustainable outcomes with, I assume, are the best and the brightest. Number one, what does the culture of the contingent have to be? Like, what? what is the... What is that environment like to always be kind of looking for t- to be on the bleeding edge? Like it's like you have to be selective on who's there and how you're able to nurture an environment that really yields, you know, some great outcomes.
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, so that's a fact, you know, in the end, talent's the whole thing. Yep. Um, and so we work really hard to hire leaders, you know, uh, the organization. Uh, Punch is hard, and you know while we're growing and all that, you know part of what we're looking for are the right people. We're doing that in a way that's a little bit sneaky, in the sense that um, what we're what we're wanting to do is be an organization that is committed to equity, is committed to people being able to bring their faith to work. Mm. But uh, and so that makes us both diverse, and it makes us also driven by the ethics of the teachings of Jesus. But we're not a faith based organization, and we're not a culturally specific organization. So. Mm we, we find ourselves in this interesting zone, you know, but you know, every day at the contingent, uh, every single one of our staff members walks around with a, a, a folder and what we're talking about, or a, a notebook mm-hmm. and that notebook is reinforcing, you know, on the cover every day, like this is what we do. And, you know, so it's about listening where we're, we're, if it's not a question asking about, you know, ask being asked about innovation uh, we're not interested. Hmm. Uh, we're committed to accountability. So, man, we dashboard the heck out of this organization, <laughs> and everybody's accountable. There's not a single person in the organization that's not accountable on a given day. Um, and then we're committed to radical hospitality. That's our fourth value, and the fifth is action.
2: Hmm.
1: So, you know, we are uh, we are saying it it is not okay um, for you to work at the contingent, and not be willing to take action in demonstrative ways. And we would rather you fail trying to innovate, trying to listen well, you know, uh, trying to, to do that. Uh, and the accountability metric is not did you win or did you lose? The accountability metric is are you acting? Hmm. Are you are you taking risks? And, and so – that's a unique cut of leader, yeah. And, you know, oftentimes some pe- people come into the contingent and go like, whoa, this is way too fast paced for me. Mm-hmm. And which is totally OK. Um, but doggone, when we find somebody that
0: fits through that prism. Yeah. You know. Uh, sparks fly. Absolutely. It's so funny. We, we talk about action. One of the things that I have noticed um, from us working together, things that we've done together um, is your comfort with rigor you know and a lot of times you know you think about you know we're on this, this misfit manifesto we're talking about misfits we're talking two misfits four misfits sometimes yeah. the narrative is that they're just dreamers sitting somewhere imagining the world and whatever and my experience with people who i'm looking at you being one of them is like nah these are the hustlers these are the people yeah. that dig it out late nights early mornings not necessarily always in unhealthy ways but they don't, hard work is not intimidating. Do you feel right. like, or let me ask you a better question, how do you encourage, facilitate an environment where the players at your table know, we're going to dig it out. And and there's rigor to what we're, tra- it's worth the fact that we're going to sweat this one out.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, this author, Charles Bukowski, you know, one time said, find what you love and then let it kill you. <laughs> and, I love it You know From my perspective Part of what We're looking for Are people who um, Believe in what we do um,
2: And love what they do And They they work with people They love To make a meaningful
1: difference mm-hmm. um, But in order for To, to make a meaningful difference There's a lot of people That love what they do And love the people They work with But the question is How do you best make A meaningful difference And from our perspective It comes down to creating What we call An idea meritocracy hmm. And so the premise of an idea meritocracy is anybody in the room at any time could have the best idea and we're not going to let um, a seniority hierarchy um, get in the way of getting to the best ideas. Um, and so the the expectation at the contingent is that we're going to compete like hell. Yeah. And so yeah. when we're in the room and we set that environment there, you know, it's, it really is uh, you've got to be ready because you will be pushed on. Hmm. And like I said, some not everybody loves that. But yeah. but when as you as we're creating that environment, recognizing that it's not about winning or losing. It really is about action. Sure. Uh, and the accountability is to act, the accountability is to take a risk. Then you say, let's get in the room, let's write the ideas down, let's get in here and let's compete. And anybody can win uh, because we're creating a more horizontal look at, at how authority works. So just because I'm the CEO doesn't mean I'm the best idea. Right. And so, you know, that I think for the right person uh, is like clean air. Yeah.
3: Because if,
1: you know, you get to wake up that day and you're a group, we're going to be with a group of people and they're going to take action and they're not going to make excuses and they're going to go hard. Uh, and you your idea could win the day no matter where you sit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's we're seeing it just kind of spin out now on the other side of that is we're asking for people to not just love what they do, you know, but to let it kill you. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems to me, Jeremy, that, you know, the ethics of Jesus are profoundly dangerous. (laughs) Absolutely. You know, I mean, this man is, is like lay down your life. You know, the path is narrow. It is, it's better to give than it is to receive. Yeah open your home to strangers, sell it all, go all in, Yeah, you know, and we're trying to translate those ethics in a work environment that basically says like, there's no such thing as a safe space.
2: Hmm. This
1: is dangerous. Hmm. And uh, you're going to walk with a limp if you work here. And man, when you're interviewing folks and you say that, <laughs> you know, you get to the right ones quick. Cause a lot of folks are like, yeah, peace. I'm out. <laughs>
0: Yes, dude. Dude, that's great. So uh, you and I, are we have two counterparts. We do this thing uh, uh, by the Church of God movement. It's called C4, empowering, helping to coach leaders to be hourly focused. This this whole thing. And so we're in a room. We're, we're in a room full of church leaders, pastors from across the country. And your opening statement is, when it comes to the church, you he, he said... Uh when it's all said and done when it comes to the church, it's mostly only said. And you could not hear a pit. I mean, it was starkly quiet. I mean, it was a it was a like I'm not even calling it a loving rebuke. It was just a rebuke. Like when <laughs> it's all said and done in the church, it's mostly only, only said. Y'all talk a lot, but where are the results? And it was a powerful moment. I'm not going to attempt to interpret that I'm gonna let you when you say that, where does that come from, and what did you mean? yeah, you know I'm gonna come at it from a little bit of a weird angle,
1: Jeremy as but you here's should. What I would say i think in if you if you look at the history of of the church, you know this the church is, has held the social fabric together um in societies for a very long period of time now, if you want to really dig into the history, some of that's controversial and it's you know embedded in-bed relationship with the state in certain sure. parts of church history. And, and there's there's a lot of controversy about how the church saw itself holding together the social fabric. But, you know, my whole hypothesis is that in the mid-20th mid century, when the church began to uh, break down in its ability to hold the challenges that were being present in the neighborhood, uh, the church advocated much of its responsibility to care for the most vulnerable in their neighborhood. Part of it was a is it was a business constraint, and some of it I think came down to some shifts that were made in culture as churches tried to get big, or tried to, you know, compete for people in ways that were more about um, the ideas than they were about the action, and and so you know, what's infuriated me over the last few years is, you know, the church has been just so ardent in its rebuke of the role of government, hmm. uh, and. You know, the the reality is is in that same period of time when the church started advocating its responsibility, the government started stepping up, hmm. and the government built systems. Whether or not they work all that well or not can be debated, but the reality is, if you want to know who is engaging the most vulnerable people in Inglewood, California, or in Portland, Oregon, it it's people that work for the state of California or LA County
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, at scale. Or the mm-hmm. people that work in Portland or in Multnomah County at scale, and so my frustration with the church at this point is is not its theology, sure. it's not its you know uh, the way it creates internal community. It's just the way that the ideas that are that where internal community and theology where those ideas come together, it's all talk.
2: Hmm.
1: It's all taught. and. So for me, the question really becomes, now that the church is being deconstructed and will be in a way that your children and my children will have a very different lived experience than even we did um, in terms of the viability of the church and culture. Uh, you know, my critique is really a uh, an admonition, more than anything, sure. to um, rediscover the the golden thread that is still present, and that is that the ethics of Jesus are about action. Yeah. Yeah. It is about what we do um and you know I don't see Jesus all that concerned about church services uh I I just I don't find it all that much in his teaching or in his life Sal. Sure. and so for those of us who follow him then it really does come like how do we walk how do we breathe how do we talk what sacrifices are we making and I do have hope now you know I can't remember who who said it but like I think it was GK Chesterton said, you know, four times in human history people thought the church had gone to the dogs and every time it was the dogs who died. <laughs> you know. And from my perspective, like I still have extreme hope for sure. the church. Sure. You know, um, and am in no way abandoning it yet. Uh we gotta we gotta recalibrate quick.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. It feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, it feels like a little bit of the work that you're doing, um, is influenced by maybe some of the lack of action in religious spaces. You're, you're kind of making up some of the difference, you know, kind of trying yeah, to step exactly. into the gap. Yeah, I think that's
1: right. I think that's right. We're ha- we're recognizing that, you know, when I hear people say, like, the local church is the hope of the world. We just need to get back to it. It's like, nah, no, <laughs> those days are those days are past. Like, we're going to have to come up with a third way. The church is going to have to humble itself. Mm-hmm. And actually apologize for some of uh, for for taking a hiatus from stepping into the most vexing spaces, mm-hmm. and to re-engage. There's a group of people that um, you know are not going to acquiesce that. So what we're trying to do is create a paradigm for people of faith and people in the community to be able to get involved uh, at scale and yeah. in their local neighborhood and. Yeah. You know, we we work with hundreds and hundreds of church partners, and that's why I don't want to denigrate the church. It's it's, it's not that it's not a valuable delivery system. It's just at this point, not a scalable one when looking at the size of the problem. Hmm. Um, And so if you were to look at it like there's the faith community and then there's the government or then there's the nonprofit sector. What we're trying to do in this venture space is actually try to weave all that together using, you know, some innovative strategies. Uh, which I can get into if you're interested, but, you know, ultimately that's the space that we're in. It's a, it's a weird space to be in, but
0: you know. Well, so here's, so I had another question, but I do want to hear some of the innovative strategies that you guys are utilizing to the end you just mentioned. So like, what are some of those things?
1: Yeah. So like we're about $6 million into uh, a series of investments in partnership with Microsoft. And, you know, we have found a way to use technology and digital strategy uh, to mobilize people in the community by their zip code, you know, to get engaged with their local neighbors. Hmm. And, you know, in the last four years we've seen 32,000 volunteers come forward in the state of Oregon through the contingent, just, just one of the contingent initiatives. Wow. Um, and, you know, all in, we've served about 55,000 people, you know, and so, you know, that is, you know, a pretty dramatic, um, a, you know, call out to like the way that people make decisions
2: mm-hmm.
1: is largely vis-a-vis technology. Mm-hmm. And it's going to be more so uh, with the creation of AI and some of these other things. And it's going to be less analog. Mm-hmm. It's, it, you know, it's going to be less sh- setting up a booth at the county fair or <laughs> going to a church service or mm-hmm. whatever. Like that's just not a scalable way to mobilize people. And so what we're trying to, what we've developed is a, as a method of doing that as a series of technologies and p- products um, to get that done at the contingent, we have a, an innovation hub, we call it the community collider. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that is about it's 30 nerds <laughs> and all they think about is mobilizing people. Hmm. And uh, you know, and the nerds are the ones that are going to pull this off in the end. That's my, you know, I think that's what it's going to land to. I and so, it. you know, that's that's in essence like what we are doing is a way of trying to bust up some of the binary mm-hmm. of who's responsible, um, you know, for challenging some of these problems. And we're put trying to put the, the uh, onus
0: right on the neighbor, smack dab on the neighbor, mm-hmm. um, communicating to them their neighborhood need. That's incredible. And I'm actually going to come back to that because I want to drill a little bit further down into, as you all are employing these new technological advancements, I want to actually like give more context to that. But before I get there, I want to take a step back because you all kind of made a big play a few years ago that got you everything from lawsuits to death threats. I mean, you were smack dab in the middle of some craziness because... You all went big. Talk about, talk about that play.
1: Yeah. So, you know, for those of you listening or watching, you know, obviously you might remember that during the pandemic, when George Floyd was murdered, the city of Portland was literally almost lit on fire. I mean, there was 150 days of consecutive protests. So Portland became, you know, a bit of a metaphor for the riding on the far left Hmm. and uh you may have heard of Antifa and the proud boys and all this stuff that was going on. Well, one of the things that we were a part of exposing was trying to actually ask some bigger questions in partnership with a few hundred black leaders in Oregon about some of the systemic issues that were at play. And so long story short, Jeremy, you know, all these, this, this cares Act came with, with all this federal money and everybody, you know, was getting loans and, and all kinds of cash grants and things. And what we started to see, uh, in Oregon was that the black community was being disproportionately impacted by COVID and was having a more and more difficult time accessing some of these resources from our perspective for, because of some systemic issues with the small business administration and banks and that kind of a thing. And so we made a play using, and this is super heady, but we made a play using a theory out of Berkeley called targeted universalism. And the premise of it is, you know, There is a way for us to make the argument that we could take these federal funds, these CARES Act monies that are coming into the state and to make the case that there is a disproportionate um, impact from COVID on the black community. And we could go after a significant amount of money with the idea of offering a targeted response to serving that community in a culturally responsive way um, for which the state of Oregon had historically failed and so we wrote a legal brief, uh, a 19-page legal brief, and made the case of the Oregon legislature. And um, in late 2020, we were awarded $62 million. Hmm. And um, the money was great, but what the, was really great was the $62 million was very targeted, and that was if, if it was exclusively to give cash grants away to anyone in Oregon who self-identified as black, Um, and was impacted by COVID or any Black-owned business or any Black-led nonprofit. And so, you know, to give you an idea, the Small Business Administration in 2019 gave away four loans to Black-owned businesses in the state of Oregon. When we started this fund, we issued 375 grants to Black-owned businesses in 60 days. Wow. And so the, the premise is you take public resources and you target them Using culturally responsive approaches um, and you get the government out of the way is, in essence, the premise. Well, turns out that there were some lawyers across the United States that were upset with that. They felt like we were violating the Constitution. And so, you know, what's crazy, Jeremy. You know, you and I should talk more about this. But the guy that sued us is a guy by the name of Ed Bloom. Mm -hmm. And Ed Bloom is the country's top conservative national legal activist. So he sued us in federal court. And his goal, we believe, was to try to take us to the Supreme Court. Right now, there's a case at the Supreme Court uh, where Ed Bloom has sued Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Hmm. And he is trying to eliminate affirmative action in their enrollment policies. And it is the first step in Ed's quest to eliminate affirmative action across the United States. Wow. They already had oral arguments. The Supreme Court's holding it because in June, affirmative action will effectively be eliminated in higher education. Hmm. And um, he's going to win. Hmm. And this same guy sued me or sued us. And uh, we had three other lawsuits after $700,000 in legal fees and three Jeez. death threats, you know, uh our offices were ransacked and the offices were flooded and they stole all our stuff, you know, like it was by saying by using moral imagine, imagination to say yes to serving the black community in Oregon, which if you remember 20 minutes ago saying a state that was designed as a white utopia. Yeah. You know, we, we took this dare, you know, and, you know, it was the most dangerous thing I've ever done Yeah, um, because all of the conservative forces came out from all over the country. Something like, I mean, we were in the wall street journal, the New York times, Tucker Carlson, the whole thing, people wanted on my head on a platter. And, uh, you know, ultimately it goes back to, you know, The law is two things. First of all, the law is not a stone. Sure. But secondly, um, moral imagination is required for these times. And if you decide to use it at its fullest throat, it might kill you.
3: Yeah.
0: Yeah. I was uh, this past week, I had the chance to speak at uh, a university, um, predominantly white university, Christian university university. And uh it was um it was their chapel, it was commemorating Dr. King. Okay, sure, yeah. So, you know, so of course <laughs> <laughs> they called me. That's a whole other podcast. <laughs> right. So, um so I talk about so I read an excerpt from Dr. King's final speech uh the night before his assassination at Mason Temple in Memphis. And, you know, you know, part of it is, you know, I'm fearing no man, nothing matters, it doesn't matter to me now, you know what I'm saying? I just wanna do God's will. And what I suggest to them, I said, listen, I said, this, this is the institution of ambition. I said, but please understand, with moral ambition comes great peril. And I don't want you to be confused about what it means to step forward, to do anything of consequence, because oftentimes that road is full of trouble. And a lot yes. of times, you know what I'm saying, you know, you think about, and I, I referenced the Matthew 6, Matthew 20, when the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee asked Jesus to allow for her boys to be the right and the left. And yeah, he asked yeah. a really important question. Can you drink this cup? Yeah, and they're like, yeah. sure. And then we get down to, you know, to Matthew 26, I think, where Christ yeah. is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he's asking for the cup to be removed from him because yeah. moral ambition doing something great comes with great peril and i think when i look at your life you know a lot of times you know we love to look at and and this is not a this is not a knock i think some of the greatest people are wonderfully gifted to stand on stage and to give us context and articulate deep theological and spiritual truths but i also believe that when we look for those who are representatives of the ethic of jesus it's the ones with scars and bruises and lawsuits and death threats and the one. that's to me, a more accurate depiction of what it means to be a person of consequence in a lot of ways, not totally, but in a lot of ways, because when you step boldly into something of consequence, people are headhunting. Jesus, yeah. Dr. King, I mean, you name it, you know what I'm saying? That's just yeah. a way of that of that life.
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I just want to make it real clear though, Jeremy, that's one of the things that I so admire about you. You have, I, I've never seen you, you know, make an excuse, you know, like the way that you have both led center of hope and the way you're leading Jeremy Dixon Ministries and the way you're building out Misfits. I just want to thank you for creating space for this conversation. Sure. And, or space is, might I say, mm-hmm. for these conversations, because it is, uh, it's rare goes back to my earlier comment it's like it's just rare like at this point what we mostly want to do is like stand at a podium or get on instagram and like have a take Mm -hmm. uh but you know at this point you know that's dime a dozen yeah you know to me it comes down to you know who are the folks that are going to bleed yeah yeah that's what it's going to come down to
3: absolutely
0: so um so On my podcast, I've I've been kind of for this first season, I've been ending with this question that I first made this statement. You were in the actual room. We were in Philly. And, I, you know, and so I was. By the way,
1: best I've heard Jeremy preach, (laughs) this sermon he gave in Philadelphia melted my face off. That was for to this
0: day, like, bro. You were prophetic, and you also got beat down a little bit. Oh boy, did I get beat down! <laughs> that I never been in more trouble in my life than that after that that conversation, you know, publicly. Um, but I, I, I quote Sergey Brin right: "Science fiction, if it's got to be, if if it's not seeming like science fiction, it's not transformational." So you were there, and and we spoke after. Um, but I actually want to like like dig in and kind of lead the witness on this because you've got this algorithm and you, talk, you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but um, you talk about AI, you talk about like big data, like all of these elements, you all have found a way to leverage them in a very unique way for social good, not for, you know, your own enrichment. You know, we, we do know that people are using big data, AI for their own enrichment, you all are leveraging it for social good and it's this this algorithm you you created can you to the best of your ability cuz maybe some of us are not nerds or as smart as others of us and i know i'm i'm on you know i'm kind of coming yeah, in slow but if you can talk a little bit about cuz to me what you have done feels like the the best science fiction ever and we're seeing it come to life right now so talk a little bit about that Yeah, so in in January in July
2: of
1: 2019, the governor of Oregon asked us if we would be willing to oversee the responsibility to recruit foster parents for the whole state. Yeah. And at the time, we were growing statewide, and um, and we had this ethical dilemma. And the dilemma was, on the one hand, how do you say no to an opportunity like that? Uh, you know, uh, when the governor's asking you to do something, you know, and you believe that you've got a punching chance, like, it's hard to say no. The problem was... The other side of the ethical dilemma was if we say yes, do we really believe we have a delivery system to meet the need? And the answer to that was unequivocally no. So we went into the lab and uh and what came out of that was an algorithm that we wrote. And the algorithm is basically designed to complement the boots on the ground work, which for which there are no shortcuts. And mm-hmm. I just want to be real clear about this. Yeah. This is the this is the work that the church does better than anybody in terms of being able to sit with people in the neighborhood, you know, and do that, that there is, you know, Peter Drucker says the church is the only institution capable of re-civilizing broken communities. But the only problem is, is that the church is also the most fragmented institution hmm. in any given community. Yeah. Uh, but when you, when you, for, for, so for us, up until 2019, we had leaned so heavily on this analog work asking churches and other community organizations and to, to kind of hold the water, for the foster care system in their community and the results just weren't there. And uh, so we wrote an algorithm. The premise was what would it look like to take some of the same tools that, you know, Nike uses to chase you down to buy a pair of shoes in order to, and, but to, to figure out how those algorithms work mm-hmm. and the technologies work behind them to animate them. And what if we bolted on a world-class uh, community experience where, like, every single person um, that we were able to recruit would get a, a you know a warm phone call within 24 hours, and somebody would walk in with them as they're discerning, and then evaluate the stink out of that on the back end. So, COVID hit, and we published this algorithm, and our foster family recruitment numbers went up when every other state in the country the numbers went down, including mm-hmm. counties like LA County. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened is, you know, we wrote this algorithm and, and published it uh you know and um and all the kind of technological products that are around it you know we've built out in partnership with Microsoft the Trump administration sent a delegation to Oregon and uh evaluated some of our work and basically said you know hey we'd love to try to scale this you know mm-hmm. across the United States well then then covid hit mm-hmm. and so um so that never happened until right towards the tail end of COVID over the last year, we've been in conversations with about 10 different states across the country. And so now we're taking this algorithm on the road. So actually in February of 2023, on the 28th, I'll be doing a press conference with Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Wow. And we're launching Every Child, Arkansas and the contingents standing up in Arkansas in in September, working with Governor Holcomb. We're going to be launching and taking over the system in indiana Hmm. and we've got much you know a few more states in the queue and so it's just been this journey of realizing that those on the ground and those in government you know are serving faithfully but we've got to think about the ethical use of technology and the ethical use of big data and the ethical use of some of these algorithms and what ai can do like if y'all haven't googled chat gpt yeah you know (laughs) dolly and some of this stuff like yeah the, 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 a, you know technology is is in its first the the kind of digital technologies that were available to us today are still in the first chapter yeah like all of us are going to have our lives transformed over the next few decades and what we need is some some people to obsess about how to use that for good yeah and uh that in essence jeremy is is really what I'm going to give the rest of my life to. Is figuring out how to use these tools, these technologies, to mobilize people to lay down their life. And you know, I know you're a foster parent, Jeremy. And again, that's a whole other podcast. Sure. You know, and I, I'm a foster parent too. And the reality is, being a foster parent is basically throwing your life off a cliff.
2: <laughs> like yeah. there's there's it's yeah.
1: or or it's like a yeah. Like a choose your own adventure game. Yeah. Like you don't know what's behind door A, B, C. When you sign up to welcome a child into your home, all bets are off. Yeah. And it's painful because you fall in love and then oftentimes that child is removed from your home and it feels like it's literally tearing your freaking guts out. Yeah. We're trying to get people to say yes to that on the internet. (laughs) Right, right, right. You know, and, and, or at the county fair or at the church service. But what we've got to figure out how to do is, how do we, how do we, uh, we just need more. Yeah. Uh, we need more families to say yes. And that's, you know, an example of one of our initiatives and we're, how we're using technology to do it. So I'll go on and on about, it. I'll yeah. shut up, but I just would say like, you know, it's, it, to me, if for anyone listening, you know, I just want to encourage you that now is not a time for a pessimistic view of technology because you will become a curmudgeon and your as your life it, if you, as your life, look through a pessimistic lens, as you feel like your life is slipping through your fingertips, mm. now is a time for an optimistic view of technology, and to play offense with it, and actually to try to figure out how to compete using it, and you will find that you will grit life better uh, as a leader in the days ahead. Mm. And if you opt out now,
0: don't come whining. Yeah. Yeah. Um. In, in a space we were in, we we're kind of talking about technology and it got a little tense with some of our audience, um, because they were raising what I think are absolutely, you know, incredibly thoughtful questions about some of the hazards. Sure. Um and I think for, for you and I, it wasn't so much that there was an aversion to thinking deeply about some of the complexity of being responsible with these these new advancements, but it was us saying but we've gotta go anyway, we, we've gotta figure out how to be conscious of this and persevere. So my question to you, just kind of just to round out really this this dialogue, my question to you is like, what are the things that, you, how are you thinking about, you know, um, hedging against some of the hazards and how would you give leadership ultimately to those of us who, you, who are gonna take the dare and not be anti, but to be optimistic. like how are you helping us think deeply about doing so responsibly and with a consciousness that we have to be thoughtful about ethics, thoughtful about utilization, thought about the rewiring and programming of the human brain like how what what's your and I know you don't have all the answers. we're all kind of like figuring it out. but what do you think so far? Yeah, so, one of the reasons why I think there are people that have such a concern about what's happening
1: with the use of technology and big data, AI, et cetera, is that they're seeing people's brains get rewired. Yeah. And, and I think it's happening. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm not head in the sand about the realities that we are, you know, addicted to these tools. Yeah. Um, And to say, I'm not addicted would just be me lying at this point. Yeah. You know, but from my perspective, What I think is important is to realize that we need some courageous ones that can go and compete um, for how these tools can be used to, um, you know, Paul talks about it like like the life in Christ is to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Mm -hmm. And because there are dark, insidious forces trying to. Rewire how we think. There needs to be a commensurate mm-hmm. army, if you will, trying to renew
2: mm-hmm. our
1: mind in how we make decisions and how we engage content, mm-hmm. uh, how we spot fake news, how we how we allow the tools to drive our behavior. And so, to me, as someone that believes the hay is out of the barn on this, you know, it is about trying to compete with a positive force and the way that we're going to start by doing that here. And, you know, we're about three years into this journey. So, you know, there's a long way to go, but we're going to just try to solve a social problem.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And that is let's find a home for every child in foster care in LA County or wherever. Let's do it. Yeah. And if we could, if we can demonstrate that the people with the right ethics and the right ground game relationships can use this technology and welcome people into a different kind of community uh to do hard things for others that uh there are there are ways that we can can show the positive force and it's not gonna solve it's not gonna solve some of the fears of others sure um you know um, and I get that yeah you know yeah but but if we start solving problems and we actually start seeing kids taken care of who otherwise, uh, you know, are having a difficult time, I think we might we might convince some of the old heads.
0: Yeah. On that note, brother, thank you so much, Ben. It's been an absolute incredible time, bro. I mean, this is I, I've said in other spaces. One of the cool things about me doing the podcast now is that at least for this season. These are just conversations we've had privately that we get to have publicly, yeah. man. And so I'm just so grateful, bro. Uh, thanks again, Ben.
1: Yeah. Jeremy, I love you. And I look forward to seeing you next month.
0: Yes, sir. Yes, sir, man. All thanks. I'll right. I, I holler at you, bro. Thank you so much for listening to the Misfit Manifesto. I trust this has been as impactful for you as it has been for me. Now, what makes these type of moments in this community special is when you're a part of it. So I want to encourage you to go to MisfitManifesto.com. Join the conversation and join the community. I believe something is on the horizon, but I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it with you. So come be a part and let's see some amazing things happen.